you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. We're going to be reading this morning in verse 17 and continue on to the end of the chapter. Hear the word of the Lord. So she, that is Ruth, gleaned in the fields until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her mother-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours and one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray together. Father, again, we ask for your blessing upon the reading, the preaching of your word. We pray as well, uh, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to receive uh, the word of life and that we would uh, think upon it, we would meditate upon it, that we would have it sink deep within our hearts that we might know you and love you and trust you in your ways. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. On September 9th, 1996, severe weather was uh, affecting the cities of Raleigh and Wake Forest, North Carolina, where I was attending seminary at that time. And I remember I was sitting in class that night when all of a sudden the power went out, a number of the power lines went down. My professor continued to hold class by candlelight. And I was not very happy about that. By the time we got uh, to the car and started, I started driving home, uh, it was, uh, the winds were you know, just torrential, and uh, you could just see the bends of the trees the, just being beaten back and forth uh, by the, the gale force winds. I finally got to the house that I was staying at, and it was in the middle of the woods. There's a number of huge trees all around, and I got very nervous for the sake of my car. Uh, but eventually I found a place to park it, and I went inside the house to find safety. Well, um, that previous winter... Uh, I had been in a car accident where I hit a patch of, of black ice. My car spun out of control, and immediately the guy behind me smacked me really hard and immediately caused uh, my car to be totaled. And so for uh, about nine months, I was without a car because I couldn't afford to buy a new one because mine was worthless. And so when they totaled it, they may have gave me a dollar for it. It was really that bad. Uh, but ultimately, I finally found another car, purchased it, and had it for about two weeks prior to the storm. Well, lo and behold, when I got home to where the trees were, I had moved the car about two different times to try to find the perfect position away from all of the large, you know, fearful trees. Uh, ultimately, I think I, I felt good about it. I went inside, went down into the basement, and hunkered down. But for some reason, about an hour later, I... <laughs> I, didn't, I still didn't feel comfortable about the, the, the car, and so I got out into the middle of the storm again, moved it again, and, and found a better place, I thought, this time for the sake of 
the storm. And then finally went back inside, went to the basement. The storm died down after a few hours, and I fell asleep. Well, the next morning I get up, and I look out the window. In the front yard, there are at least three trees that had fallen down. There were branches, leaves everywhere, as you might would expect. And then I opened the back door, and not a single one of those large trees had fallen. Not a single one. But there was one tiny tree that fell that was about maybe eight feet tall. And it fell smack down the middle of my car and totaled it. So within a period of just a few months, I had two cars that were totaled. And I again was without a ride and had no money to buy another car. So at that point, you know, what was I to think? How was I to interpret these events? I think uh, most of us in America today would come to one of two conclusions. Either I was just a very unlucky individual or else God was holding a grudge against me. <laughs> Otherwise, these things would not have happened. Of course, you know, when you, when you look at, it's very small potatoes in the large scheme of things. Most of us have had much worse things that have happened to us than have a car hurt in some way or another. Uh, but when I, when I was reading through the book of Job and, and reflecting upon uh, how he interpreted what was going on in his life, you remember he had messengers coming to him back to back telling him at first that his oxen and donkeys had all been stolen, then afterwards uh, his sheep and his shepherds had all been killed, and after that another messenger came and told him how his camels had all been lost, and then on top of that finally the messengers come and say there's a great storm that came, your house has collapsed and killed every one of your sons and daughters inside. How did he interpret that? Well, at first we're told that he recognized that it was, in fact, the Lord's doing, that this was not a matter of luck or being unlucky in that sense, but it was the Lord who had given, the Lord who had taken away, you know, blessed be the name of the Lord, as we know that the text reads. But he didn't assume any motivation behind why God brought this upon him, and that's why he was commended for not attributing evil unto the Lord by making a rash accusation of, of, of God. Similarly, when we see his friends interpreting these events and what's happened, they too do not attribute anything to bad circumstances of luck in that sense, but rather they also attribute it to the sovereign hand of God. However, they assume that he must have done something bad, something really bad in order to get on God's bad side, otherwise these things wouldn't have happened. But the one thing that is consistent throughout the book is that it was in fact the sovereign hand of the Lord who had caused these things to happen. In fact, one of his friends, one of his later counselors says in Job chapter 37, verse 13, he says, it is God who causes the whirlwind. He is the one who brings thunder and lightning, sleet and hail, and every other related phenomenon, basically. Uh, he says, whether it's for correction or for his land or for love, it is the Lord who causes all these things to happen. So God has his reasons. He may have a number of different ones, as the counselor implies, but nevertheless, it is the Lord who has brought these things about. Similarly, we already have seen in the previous chapter in the book of Ruth that Naomi credited the Lord for ordering these difficult circumstances in her life. She says that she had left Bethlehem full, and now she has returned empty. And it's because of the Lord's doing. The Lord has brought her back empty. And again, she's attributing the deaths of her husband, of her two sons, both to the Lord, that he is the one who has taken their lives. She's not just an unlucky woman, but for some reason, the Lord has taken the lives of those that are close to her. And, and so she attributes her bitter circumstances to the hand of the Lord. But in our text today, we're going to begin to see the opposite 
end of the spectrum, where now she's beginning to attribute to God the good things that are happening in her life. And we're beginning to see that now she's beginning to bless the Lord rather than complain about her bitterness. Strangely, though, the book of Ruth actually attributes some of the events that are happening at this moment in the book of Ruth to this idea of chance, or what we might call luck. Uh, in, in verse 3 of chapter 2, after Ruth gets permission from Naomi to go and to glean grain in one of the fields, the author states this, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was, the clan, who was of the clan of Elimelech, a relative of Naomi's. But in the Hebrew, it makes it even more obvious. It says it this way, something like, Ruth just happened to happen upon Boaz. Or Ruth chance, chanced upon the allotted portion of the field belonging to Boaz. So the writer in Hebrew, uh, he, he repeats it twice, that it just happened to happen. Uh, it was something that it was totally unexpected, and it just happened to fall out in this particular way. And this is not the only time in Scripture that the writers of the Word of God speak in this way. Um, we see a couple of other examples. Last week I would mentioned to you the passage in Genesis chapter 24 when Abraham's servant uh, came upon the well where he met Rebekah, who's going to be Isaac's wife. Again, the way it reads in the Scripture is that he just, she just happened to be at the well at the same time. She just happened to happen to be there. In the same way in Genesis chapter 29, same thing. When uh, Jacob is, is, is going away, uh, fleeing from his parents, Rachel just happens to be at the well. And he meets her just in that chance happening. They both meet one another and they get married later on. Genesis chapter 37, a similar occurrence. Uh, Joseph is is uh, being abused by his brothers. If you remember, they're looking for a way to kill him. They throw him into the pit. And right at the moment where they're ready to take his life, this, this Ishmaelite slave caravan just happens to come by. And his life is preserved. And then they just happen to sell him to Potiphar, who's one of the uh, Pharaoh's lead uh, officials. And then a number of other things just happen to where now he is the second in command of all of Egypt and his preserving the lives of all of Israel. Uh, again, it, it, this, this type of language is used again and again. One, one other example would be Moses, when he was a baby, if you remember, his mother put him in that watertight basket and put him down the Nile River. And the way the Scripture reads is the Pharaoh's daughter just happened to come out right at that moment. And she finds Moses, and she takes him home to be her son. Seemingly, all of these things just happen to happen at the very right moment, right? But does anything just happen? Uh, there are many people in our country today, I think, that would say that life itself just happened to occur on Earth. You know, out of all the planets and all of the solar systems and all the galaxies and all the universe, for some reason this world just happened to have the right stuff in order for life to exist here on Earth. Now, Scripture will use that term, it happened, it just happened that way, but there's always something that occurs prior to that when we see the full story. Uh, think about it this way, when you read Genesis chapter 1, and you're, you're reading the whole chapter, you'll notice that it'll say something consistently, there's a pattern, right? There's always something that precedes the happenings, and what is that? Literally, it says God spoke, and then something happened, right? Right? 
We see God said, let there be light, and then it happened. There was light. God said, let there be, let the waters come together and let the, the ground be separated from it, let the, the dry ground appear, and literally the way it reads in the Scripture, and it just happened. It just so happened to turn out exactly the way he had said. Well, just as creation happened merely by God's Word, so we see that all that has happened since then also has occurred as a result of what God has said. Now, we don't always see what he says or hear what he says, but nevertheless, every single event that has ever occurred since the beginning of life on earth happens because God has spoken and then it happens. We see this very clearly in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 3, when the Lord is speaking to his people and he says to them this, he, he tells them why, at times he tells them in the future what's going to happen for this purpose. He says, the former things I declared of old, they went out from my mouth, I announced them, then suddenly I did them and they happened. He says, sometimes I tell you in advance that they're going to happen so that you won't look to idols, but you'll look to me instead because I'm the one who causes these things to happen. But in, 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 in the process of explaining these things, he's telling us that every single thing that has ever happened, it happens because God has said, let it be so, and then it happens. So when the author of the book of Ruth is stating that these things just happened, you have to put that together with his theology, his understanding, that it happened because God had spoken and said and commanded that these things would happen. So he's not attributing uh, this happening to some uh, random encounter, some blind sense of fate, but rather it just happened because God said it should happen, and it just happened. In fact, um, when you look up the word chance in Merriam-Webster's dictionary. There are two definitions that are given. The first definition refers to anything that happens unpredictably without any observable cause. Then the second definition assumes some impersonal, purposeless determiner of events. In other words, God is not a part of this process. Either he did not create the world, he's not a part of its governing, uh, somehow he's not involved at all, and so these things just happen. That's the second definition, that, that somehow it's a, a randomness to all of life, it's unpredictable because there's nothing leading it to any particular direction. But that first definition actually coincides, it goes along with the theology we find in Scripture. It's simply stating that something is happening in an unpredictable manner, we don't see what's causing it. In other words, we don't see what God has said before it happens. So we don't know that it's going to happen in this way. We can't predict that it's going to happen this way because God hasn't told us in advance that it's going to happen. Nevertheless, it just happened. So the author is, is using this terminology, though, to get our attention, to show us that there's something more than serendipitous that is taking place here. It's something that Ruth and, and Naomi might not see or comprehend at first, but the Lord is doing something wonderful at this moment. And he's, he's drawing attention to that by repeating this. It, it just happened to happen in this way. He's, he's almost playing with us in his words. And that's why the author of the book is even pointing out twice to us in, in advance. Again, he's an omniscient narrator. He's telling us in advance what's, what's going to He's hinting at what's going to happen. But he tells us twice uh, about Boaz being of the same clan as Elimelech before Ruth even knows who this guy is. We know twice that he's related to 
uh, Naomi's husband, but she doesn't know it. Even though Ruth has no idea who he, who he is, she just knows he's being kind and generous to her. But the author wants us to know that there's something greater at play here. And so he's telling us in advance. Now, you can probably imagine Naomi's reaction when Ruth first walks in the door with that huge bag of barley on her shoulders. Uh, grinning from ear to ear, Ruth not only brings home enough grain to bake over a hundred loaves of bread for them to eat for weeks and weeks to come, but she also provides this fresh roasted grain for Naomi to eat even that night. Naomi, she, she's astounded by the bounty of what has been brought home. And again, she's asking questions immediately. Where did you work today? Where have you gleaned? And immediately she pronounces a blessing upon whoever was that man who has been favorable toward you. May the Lord bless him. Then when Ruth shares with her all that has happened and the name of the man who has been so gracious to her, immediately we see Naomi now is Blessing not only the man, but blessing the Lord who has brought that man to them. And this is the turning point in Naomi's life where we see she's turning from Mrs. Bitterworth back to her true namesake as Naomi, the, the pleasant one, the one who, who trusts in God. Notice carefully the, the choice of her words in the blessing. Upon the first blessing, she simply pronounces uh, a blessing upon Boaz. But in the second one, she's pronouncing a, a blessing upon Boaz and upon the Lord, the God who has brought Boaz to them in his loving kindness and his faithfulness to his people, both to the living as well as the dead. The word that she uses there in, in the Hebrew, is, it's a very prominent word that speaks of the covenant that God has with his people. Uh, it, some of you may have heard it before the word chesed. You have to say before you say chesed. If you want to practice that later on, can. Uh, but basically, it's a, it's a very prominent word. It's a word that's used again and again and again in Scripture to, to speak about how God has promised to be their God, to do them good, to provide for them, to care for them, to love them faithfully until the end. Every single time we see any history being recounted in Scripture of what God has done in the past, that word chesed always comes up again and again. The, the most prominent place we see it is in Psalm 136. There we, it comes up 26 times, every single verse. The psalmist will say, and then the Lord did this. And then the people respond, praise be to God. His love endures forever. Over and over and over again, they keep saying his love endures forever. Um, similar to the song that we sang earlier, uh, oh, love that will not let me go. He's promising. It's a covenantal vow by God, that he will not let us go. He will not forsake us, but will love us forever. In fact, I remember uh, when I was working in Yellowstone National Park as a chaplain, I was uh, still practicing my Hebrew, and uh, I had ran across a, uh, a family that was visiting the park that, that came from a Jewish background, and so I, I was trying to see if I could talk to them in Hebrew, which, you know, if you take Hebrew in, in, in seminary, you don't really learn how to speak it, you just learn how to read it, and very little say it very poorly, you know, in that sense. But I, I remember saying to them, just to see how much they could understand what I was saying, and I said, Ki le'olam chasdo. And they actually responded, Amen and Amen. <laughs> His love endures forever. Because every single Jew, if, if they seek the Lord in a genuine manner, they know that phrase. It's a fabric of their life. The Lord endures 
forever. In fact, Naomi's benediction is sort of an earlier form of that same expression, stating that the Lord had not forsaken her as she had supposed before, but had all along been faithful to her and to her husband and to her sons and to her daughter-in-law. Now, why all of a sudden this change of heart? Why now has the bitter woman begun to bless the Lord again? Well, Naomi has heard that it was Boaz who had shown favor to her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And that particular man, she knew, was a, a, a potential kinsman redeemer for her little family. Not only could he provide her with grain, but he could provide her with many, many more blessings if everything worked out according to plan. Uh, now, little did Naomi realize it at the time, but Boaz was actually the answer to her prayer that she had given back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where she's pronouncing an, a similar benediction upon Ruth, which she says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and me. The Lord grant that you may find rest in the house of a husband. So the Lord has not only been faithful to her, but has heard her cries, heard her prayer, and now is bringing Mr. Right at just the right time. But if that's the case, it makes you wonder, why is it that Naomi didn't consider Boaz back when she was still in Moab on the road to Bethlehem? Why didn't, why didn't she send Ruth away? Why did she want to send her back to her homeland when Boaz was a potential suitor? What, what you have to understand about the kinsman-redeemer relationship is this. A kinsman-redeemer could be a brother, it could be an uncle, it could be a distant cousin in that sense. And in many of these men, in, in, a, in a distant sort of way, can play a role as a kinsman redeemer. But there's, in terms of a relationship, if a husband dies, uh, it's only the, the close brother who is obligated then to become the husband to that woman and to bear a child for the sake of his brother's name. Uh, no other man, no cousin, no uncle, none of them would be required to do this. So Naomi must have believed that none of these other men would be willing to do this because it was such a, a greater risk and a greater stretch for someone more distant than a close brother. There was no close brother in this case. So she thought, well, I really, I really don't think that there's an option here. But there was an option, but that man would have to take a much greater risk and to get to know this foreign woman, Ruth. And, and all that goes along with that. So in the next chapter, we'll find that there is a closer redeemer than Boaz, but even he is not a brother uh, to uh, Malan or Achillean. Uh, so he was not under obligation to marry Ruth, and so he didn't. He, he declined the offer to, to take her on. Uh, but we see that Boaz does, in fact, uh, take that risk, if you will, and uh, loves her and, and provides for her in that way. And, and next week we'll find out uh, that, that he has displayed that great kindness and favor to her in that sense. But it, it would be nice, though, if Ruth had, or excuse me, if Naomi had understood that long before. If, if Naomi had considered that as an option long before, maybe she wouldn't have become so bitter in the first place. But I, I think, uh, at least in my life, I've learned <laughs> that... Uh, the bitter circumstances that God often brings into our lives is for the very purpose of testing whether or not we're going to trust God to be kind and faithful and loving when we don't see it clearly, when we haven't heard a direct word from God. Are we still going to trust that his love 
endures forever. Now, I imagine that uh, for many of, uh, of us, the story didn't quite turn out the same way as it did for Ruth and Naomi, at least uh, not at this point in the story. Uh, in, in other words, instead of winding up in the fields of a very kind and, and generous employer, I think some of us have probably uh, been rejected by a man who gave us no favor at all. Or in some cases, uh, we were employed by a very harsh taskmaster who continued to give us living hell in our work from day to day. So in other words, not everyone ended up in the fields of Boaz, right? We know that. In the same way, I think uh, there's some here who probably, instead of finding a good man like Boaz, ended up in an abusive marriage. Or in a marriage where the husband neglected his wife altogether. In those cases, you have to ask the question, was the Lord still guiding your steps? Was the Lord still being kind and gracious? Because it didn't end the same way it did for Naomi and Ruth. It, at least it doesn't seem to be. But, but I think that's the whole point, is that this isn't the end of the story for Naomi and Ruth. We're still in the middle of the story, in the same way it is for us as well. Uh, this is not the end of our story. If we were to analyze at this very moment, especially at the moment that Naomi's husband died and her two sons died, and at that moment stopped and analyzed it, is God good? And you based it merely upon what happened at that moment, I think most people would say, well, no, he's not. He, he made uh, some very awful things. He allowed some awful things, ordered some awful things to happen, however you want to put it. But that's not the end of the story for Naomi, is it? It's not the end of the story for, for Ruth, no matter how difficult it was at that moment in their, their great grief and, and pain. But then, if you think about it, moments before Ruth had come into the door with that big bag of barley on her shoulders, Naomi was still doubting whether or not God was going to provide food for her that night. In just a moment, a matter of minutes, the Lord had not only given her the first fruits of the harvest, but had given her hope of so much more to come. How quickly her outlook changed just like that. After perhaps many months or years of suffering and wondering, doubting God's goodness. And he would, he would bring that hope through the one person that Naomi had not even considered. If you think about it, most of our struggles with depression, our struggles with doubt, and, and all these other things in life, often comes because of things we haven't considered. You ever thought about that? We, we, we think we understand how the world works, and we think we know how God works, and, and we think that we're going to figure out a way to go forward, and it's at the moment we can't figure it out, that's when we lose hope. And that's when we begin to doubt God and his love and his, his goodness uh, to us. But what we see throughout Scripture, that the testimony is consistent, it, it's always this way. It's the things we didn't consider, that's how God saves. It's the things that we didn't consider, that's how God redeems. That's how God blesses. That's how God shows his wondrous works. And at the moment when we finally see it, yes, we, our mouths are opened in praise and, and we want to bless the name of the Lord. We finally get it. We finally 
have been included in what God is doing. We, we get it. We see something of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And at that moment, our mouth is full of praise. But what happens when we don't see it? And we don't understand it. Well, that's where the faith in God's word and his works comes in. And we have to say, along with the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, how unsearchable are the Lord's judgments. How inscrutable his ways. If you think about that for a minute, what Paul is saying is that I cannot figure out what God's judgments are. I, I, I can't even fathom the way he's going to use to bring about his blessing. I, I can't figure it out. It's too deep. It's too mysterious for me. I, 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 can't, I can't get it. And I, I think ultimately all of us have to come to that conclusion if we're going to grow in our faith in the Lord, we, we have to hold on to statements just like that one. Because it's when we're at the end of our rope and, and, and we're perplexed by the sovereign will of God to allow this particular thing to happen in our lives. We have to tell ourselves that the Lord has something in mind that is well beyond my knowledge. That the Lord is, is doing something. He has, he's chosen a way forward from here that I have not yet considered. I have not even thought that it could be this way. In other words, there, there are other Boazes in our lives that we have yet to, to run into. We haven't yet seen the blessing and the goodwill of the Lord in regards to the hard providences in our lives. But indeed, the, the Lord is so very good and kind to us. Every single thing that he has spoken is meant for our good. But we're often surprised when <laughs> all of a sudden there's one of those unlooked-for blessings that just happens. When one of those really unique, wondrous things brings the solution to our problem that we haven't even considered. That, that's often how the Lord works. Uh, think about it. That's exactly what he did with the cross, right? I mean, even, even when he is making his way to Jerusalem, his disciples are baffled that he would want to go there knowing that they wanted to kill him. They, they, they wouldn't even consider that this is the way of salvation. They, they, even though he told them three times, they, they could not fathom it. They could not comprehend it. Even the, the religious leaders who were, were seeking to kill him could not believe that God would actually send his son to die for his people. The, the people who were standing there, who, who were yelling, crucify him. All, they could not understand that God would crush his own son in order to save. just made no sense to anyone there. made no sense. It stands to reason that if, if God's people back then didn't understand what God was doing in their salvation, then we today as God's people 
more than likely will not understand what he's doing in our sanctification. God works the same way. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Um, but, but I'd say in addition to that, we also won't understand what he's doing to save the rest of the world, not just us, but, but all the world, right? Um, I, th I think the hard part about our interpreting God's methods is that we forget the story's not really about us. The story's not really just about our loved ones. It's a much bigger story than that. It's about God and his kingdom. It's when we only try to interpret God in terms of our little story that we, we come to the wrong conclusion. And, and that's where that passage comes in that, that Mark read earlier in Philippians chapter 1, uh, verses 12 and following. At that time, if, if, as Mark said, the Apostle Paul was in prison. Um, he had gone uh, to, to tell others about the love of God in Christ Jesus, and yet, for some reason, people wanted to throw him into prison. Now, I think for, for most of us, uh, if that's our story at the moment, I think that would be a pretty bleak interpretation. Okay, well, I guess God has abandoned me. And we think about John the Baptist when he was in prison. He's like, well, are you the Christ or not? I mean, he's, he's very confused. Why would God allow these things to happen? Why is Jesus allowing him to stay in jail? But, but the Apostle Paul, he's beginning to see through the, the, the harsh providence in his life, that there, there's a, a greater opportunity to talk about the gospel than he's ever had before through the bad things in his life. He, he now has great opportunities, even in the midst of his trial. And he says to the Philippians, he says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has just happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And by my imprisonment, most of the brothers have become more confident to speak the word of the gospel without fear. And then later on we find out in chapter 4, verse 22, he's even sharing greetings from believers who are within Caesar's own household who have come to faith because he was imprisoned in Rome. And so he has come to the conclusion that this is actually a really good part of the story. It's not a bad part of the story, but it's God is using something of it for good. It reminds me of a British chaplain in, in World War I, an uh, Irishman named Ben O'Rourke. He um, had no training to speak. In fact, all of the, uh, the chaplains who entered World War I, this was a new thing. They, not, they had never had chaplains in, 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 in war before, not in the same way as this. And so no one had trained him. He went on the battlefield and began to just minister to anyone who got hit or who got shot or was wounded in some way. Well, in, in the Battle of Mons in, in 1914, after the, after the British had lost the battle to the Germans, he stayed on the battlefield to tend to the wounds of, of some of those who had been uh, shot in battle. Wearing a you know, Red Cross armband, he, he realized that he was under a special protection jurisdiction uh, due to the Geneva Code. And so he assumed after he had finished tending to the wounds that the Germans would let him go, but they didn't. Uh, they imprisoned him for a number of months. And every day in the beginning of those months, he began writing letters, letter after letter after letter, demanding his freedom based upon the Geneva Convention Code. Finally, by the end of a year, he had been in prison for a year, finally they decided to let him go but by then he had refused to go 
because he realized that they needed him more now there than they ever did. Somehow the, the bad part of the story ended up being used for good. The Lord had turned his bitterness into blessing. But only because he submitted to the sovereign will of God, trusting him in the midst of his kindness and, and goodness and, 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 and so forth. And that's the way it is with all of us. If, if we're ever going to grow up in our faith and to trust the Lord, we have to look at our circumstances not merely from the perspective of our story. We have to look at it from the perspective of, of his story. We have to see through eyes of faith that God can even use these horrible miseries in our life as an opportunity for something better. Maybe then we would have more assurance of, of God's faithfulness, more assurance of his kindness to us in the midst of our trials and our uncertainties as we're watching and waiting for the Lord to reveal his word as it unfolds in our lives. I mean, after all, nothing just happens. <laughs> Trees don't just randomly fall down. Even birds, sparrows, he says, the ones that are sold for a half a penny in the marketplace, none of them fall to the ground apart from the Heavenly Father's will. Now, we may not understand why trees fall down and birds die, but the one thing we do know is that his loving kindness endures forever. He will never leave or forsake his people. He will use it all for their good and for his kingdom. Let's pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would continue to comfort us as we mourn, that you would strengthen us in our weakness, that you would help us in our, our foolishness, our, our spiritual foolishness, that we so quickly want to bring a judgment against you and, and assume that we, we know better, that we doubt and we waver. Oh, Lord, we, we pray that you would be merciful to us in our ignorance, that you would be merciful to us in our doubt. Lord, that you would strengthen uh, what remains and that you would fill us with your spirit that we might see with eyes the, the things of heaven. We might see the opportunities that we've missed before, that we might see your hand at work. And even in, in small ways, until it's fully revealed, until we know what you have said, Lord, help us to know that your love endures forever. We pray these things in Christ's name.